So this world of social media is something that's been around our lives for a long time. And honestly, the younger generation, it's just everything they know about communicating on social media platforms. But we don't really know how to problematize it or really to kind of unpack the complexities that come with this space. And so we're really privileged to have Dr. Ayu Saraswati here uh, with this um, her more recent book, Pain Generation, Social Media, Feminist Activism, and the Neoliberal Selfie. So I wanted to welcome you to our k 2 space, uh, Professor Saraswati. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me and allowing me to talk a little bit about my work. Very exciting. Well, this is, I think it's really important. And, um, you know, we recognize the power of the space of social media that so many of us are a part of. And I think we, a lot of us recognize the dangers of the space, but I think it takes time to unpack what it means to be a, pay, a place of power as well as a place of danger. Um, what do, you, do you agree with that? Yeah, so um, I think what it is, is that if we are very aware about our social media behavior, um, we will feel when we see certain kind of posting that, hmm, you know, like something doesn't feel right, you know? Um, and this could be just as we scroll through certain images or when someone posts about something that happened in their lives, um, it could like rub us the wrong way or something. And I think, um, when we pay attention to those emotions or those feelings as we go through um, our social media postings, that's I think is the first step to unpacking or learning about um, our social media behavior, right? Because um, at the end of the book, I actually talk about why I wrote this book, right? I wrote this book because exactly that. I, I'm on social media and I'm aware of the kind of thing that I would post that I would say on social media that I would have not said otherwise. And I'm like, why do I become this kind of person that I don't even know, right? Um, and as well as looking at or reading uh, my colleagues, my um, friends, um, my family members uh, kind of like posting. And I was like, hmm. Well, that's interesting. Like, why would they say it that way, right? And so it is because of that, right? That inkling, that kind of like, hmm, there's something wrong here. And I can't quite put my finger on it. And that was, um, that what led me to kind of like do more research, more reading into our social media behavior. Yeah. And I think we need to, even before we start unpacking all the content from your book, is to unpack the title because there's a lot there. So first of all, I wanted to ask you, pain generation, um, you know, why and how do we define pain in this generation? And then um, more importantly, is a lot of people may or may not understand what it means to be, what is neoliberalism? And to context of social media is what is the neoliberal self? We so if we can define those things, then maybe we can dive into the book and kind of go into what that all how it all connects. Yeah, so the pain generation itself is a double entendre, right? It has double meanings. One um, is the generation, right? Pain generation. We are the generation who capitalizes on pain, right? Um, we post about our pain. We kind of like air our dirty laundry, so to speak, on social media. And social media encourages us to do that, right? Um, and so I use that in that way. That's the first meaning. Uh, but also in my book, I also talk about pain pain as generative, right? It generates something, right? And so that's what I meant is that um, that 
in this case, that pain generates knowledge, right? Pain generates connections. Uh, in particular, because this book talks about feminist activism, it allows us to understand how feminist uh, uses pain um, or kind of like connect or mobilize around pain on social media? And what does it do to our movements? What does it do to our um, feminist activism, right? So that's the part about pain generation. Um, the, second, uh, the second concept um, or second part of the title is the neoliberal selfie. So we are aware of the, uh, at least all of us who are in women's studies um, fields, uh, we know that, um, that there is the term of like neoliberal feminist or neoliberal feminism, right? So neoliberal, so maybe unpack the word um, neoliberalism itself, right? Neoliberalism is a political economy uh, ideology, right? Um, that focuses on this transfer of responsibility from the state to the individual. And by that, I mean, um, for example, rather than um, providing access to public transportation, for example, the neoliberal sort of like ideology or, or political uh, economy um, is the one that asks the citizens to be entrepreneurs, right? To capitalize on their own private um, resources such as their cars, right? And to use it to, um, get more money in this gig economy, right? So they drive Uber, they drive Lyft, right? And so that's the difference, right? Um, rather than asking the state to provide us with public um, resources like public transportation, like buses and all that kind of stuff, we ask the individuals to, you know, you can drive your car and then I'll pay you for that. Does that make sense? So that's the neoliberal, uh, neoliberalism itself. Now, neoliberal feminists then, um, again, neoliberal feminism in women's studies, it's not like there are this bunch of women who say we're neoliberal feminists. It actually doesn't, it, it doesn't um, work like that. And we actually use it as a more of like a theoretical sort of like concept when we look at um, TV shows, right? When we look at the media, when we look at the behaviors of, you know, women um, leaders out there, right? Uh, so for example, um, Catherine Rothenberg sort of like talk about neoliberal feminism in the way that um, women would sort of take it upon themselves to lean in, right? That it is women, it is our own responsibility, right? So the word personal responsibility is kind of like a key word here in neoliberal um, sort of politics, because then again, remember, it is the per individual responsibility rather than the state or the government sort of responsibility um, to make um, changes, right? Um, and so, so, so we have that neoliberal feminism. Now, the, the feminists that I analyze in this book, none of them are neoliberal feminists. So they are not neoliberal feminists. Therefore, I cannot call or label them as neoliberal feminists. That's why we need a different language. And that different language or that different concept is what I call neoliberal selfie gaze, right? G-A-Z-E, it's gaze, right? It's a way of looking at the self. It's a way of looking at the other, right? It's a way of projecting themselves on social media. Um, and I also play around with the word selfie because on social media, um, everybody does selfie. Everybody wants to um, 
have a particular way of representing themselves on social media. So that is my long answer of like the whole concept. Yeah, it's so loaded. I can't tell you that the topic, I mean, the title itself is worthy of a whole, uh, you know, a whole presentation. So um, I'm going to pick up from the selfie, the last part you made, because that's something that's most accessible to a lot of us. I mean, I think everybody does it, right? And I remember in your presentation in the colloquium, um, you mentioned, you know, technical aspects that aid in the selfie, right? You need to have that selfie stick sometimes or you just do it yourself, but you have to think about framing and lighting and all these um, multiple ways to present yourself. And so this ties into like the whole performance aspect of the social media platform, right? How do we want to present ourselves? What's being left out? Because you do mention silence and I do want to crack into silence later, but this whole complicated world of constructing how we want to be presented while trying to critique something that we think is either healing for ourselves, because we're going back to the idea of pain, focusing on what we're trying to transfer or um, therapy, therapize, I don't know what's the word for that word, but, um, you know, what is the, this, this space, this, this power that we hold in this and why it's so troubling? Why do we need to ask ourselves how we're presenting ourselves and to critique the ones who are presenting themselves that we get so sucked into through social media? So in my book, because I focus a lot on the feminist activism, right, and the feminist campaigns on social media, I actually wrote in my book that what's the danger, right? Sort of like the question that you have, like, you know, why do we even bother talking about this, right? Um, so in my book, again, because it is specific about feminist activism, I actually argue that unless we change our social media behavior on, uh, our behavior on social media, uh, our movement is going to um, not go anywhere, right? Uh, because the movement then focuses on individuals and individual success stories, right? Rather than focusing on the movement itself, right? So I point out that um, the stake is high here because now we're celebrating women, we're celebrating how successful you know, women are as individuals, but we are actually hurting the movement as a collective movement. And so that's why it matters, right? Um, because what we are trying to change here is not just to put like certain um, predators, uh, right? Um, abusers in prison, right? We also want to change the structure. And that's like, that's the goal of this movement, right? It's not just changing um, the very, the basic sort of like individual behavior, obviously that is part of that. And that's why in my book, I talked about the ecology, right? The, the system, the structure and the individual as part of that. Uh, but for as long as we only focus on how good are we going to represent ourselves on social media, how woke we are when we are posting anything, then we're only going to care about our own social image, right? Sorry, our own um, public image, right? Um, and we're we're more invested in having good image because then we can make more money uh, by being a YouTuber, by being celebrity, but we're not gonna change the inequality. We're not gonna change the structure that creates this inequality to begin with. So you're saying that from a feminist activism perspective, which we are focusing on highlighting through your book, is you're arguing that we need to um, look at ourselves and, and our, what is posted out there through social media um, and, and, you know, critique what's, and, and to really, really critique 
how things are presented or being transferred in order to change the structure, if that's even possible, right? You, you dive into like, um, you focus on three main kind of social media stars, if you will, of uh, Rupi Kaur, Margaret Cho, and Mia Matsumiya. I'd like to break them down a little bit, but maybe we can take a quick break and we'll come back for that. If people are just tuning in, I'm talking to Professor Ayu Saraswati from the Women, Gender, Sexuality Studies Department on her most recent book, Pain Generation, Social Media, Feminist Activism, and the Neoliberal Selfie. So we'll be back. Welcome back. I'm talking to Dr. Ayu Saraswati here on her book, Pain Generation, Social Media, Feminist Activism, and the Neoliberal Selfie. As we had unpacked in uh, the previous part about even the meaning behind the title, now we're trying to kind of go into the, the dive into some specific examples that uh, Dr. Saraswati, you had kind of posed by concentrating on three specific uh, social media stars, Rupi Kaur, Margaret Cho, and Mia Matsumiya. Now, I personally confess I'm not like a social media fan. I try to, I don't, I guess I don't actively try to avoid it, but I don't pursue it uh, because of, I know it just sucks you in, you know, and just going through the, the work from these three um, women, it, it makes me think about, you know, because you had mentioned the, the dangers and the connection of this neoliberal selfie, if you will of how it cannot be disconnected to this consumerist capitalist world we live in. You know, I was just looking at uh, Rupi Kaur's um, page and there's so much advertisement for her upcoming world tour. And she's in this like beautiful ball gown. So like some of her posts are very beautiful because she's a poet, poet. And so she, 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 um, even in her, on her homepage, she says something, she starts with now is not the time to be quiet, right? So she opens up the space that we need to address. How are we going to address um, certain issues that she's focusing on and give that space for us to do that. But at the same time, you know, you bring attention to this whole capitalistic world we live in and, and that relationship between that uh, social media space and the larger forces. So I don't know if you wanted to kind of dig into that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And Rupi Kaur is actually a really, really good example of how not neoliberal feminist she is. And um, other feminist scholars who have um, studied or examined her poet, I mean, her poems have um, looked at how the content of her poems are very, um, or can count as decolonial uh, feminist um, kind of like poems, right? And so again, she is very conscious, um, very aware about uh, building community. So when you look at the content of her activism, uh, she is a self-proclaimed feminist and she builds women up. She focuses on the community, right? And so when we look at what the content itself, then we see her as a progressive decolonial feminist, right? But when we actually analyze the content um, with the context of the Instagram, right? The social media, and in my book, I call um, social media itself as a digital alchemy, right? It's an alchemy. Um, and in some ways, one of uh, Rupi Kaur's poem um, talks about how, you know, it's sort of like you, you put 
pain in and it, it comes out as gold kind of thing, right? It's this kind of like alchemy. And that's what social media is in some ways, right? Um, you post about poems, I mean, sorry, you post about pain and then um, you capitalize on that. Um, you have not only a book of poems, but also artwork based on her poems that you can now buy and then you hang on your, um, on your wall. Um, and people might ask, is there anything wrong with that? She also sells um, temporary tattoos where you can get that tattoo sort of like temporarily on your body, for, um, her illustration or her point, right? So again, people might ask, what's wrong with that, right? Again, obviously in a capitalistic society, we may see that as part of the norm. We see that as, you know, very natural, as, you know, that that's normal, right? Um, but the thing is, it's not just about buying this um, gorgeous art um, that is of, that is her poem or her illustration, right? I have, you know, paintings and you know things and um, in my home as well. So you know, what's you know, isn't it awesome that we support another you know woman of color sort of like um, business rather than others, for example, right? So the issue is not that. The issue is if that's all you do, right? And I think that's part of the problem is that we feel good because now we follow Kaur's um, Instagram account. We um, sign petition online. Maybe we buy her um, temporary tattoos. Maybe we buy her um, art, right? Um, that you can hang on your wall. Uh, but then how are we gonna change the structure, right? And so that's what I'm sort of like problematizing is that there are other things that, that still need to happen, right? Celebrity activism can only do so much. And actually celebrity activism makes us feel good because we think that, oh, somebody else is doing the work like Margaret Cho, and therefore we don't have to do the work. And that's part of the problem. And that's the problem that, I, that I'd like to um, bring up here is that you know, these are actually, again, uh, I'm repeating myself here that we are hurting the movement, right? Hurting the movement. Yes, we are supporting this amazing, um, inspiring, you know, feminist activist. And I myself am a big fan of their works. Um, but at the same time, how can we, you know, continue to support the movement, do more than just, you know, buying something that supports neoliberalism, that supports capitalism? you know, what about supporting, um, you know, feminism, right? I mean, that that's, that's why it's so insidious in a way, because, you know, these silent spaces that don't, um, you know, your average um, person who um, indulges in social media will not want to critique the space because then it takes away from the energy that it either helps to heal that person like you said it you project yourself you know if you have trauma and you see somebody um admitting to it and, and offering such intimate um stories it, it 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 makes us feel like we're part of that and that and in that in sense it's kind of a feminist activism in that power right but i'm also thinking about these artists and what it does to them becoming so successful like what gets sacrificed or transformed um, or, or um, you know, what, what gets morphed in this process of becoming successful? It's like, it's so ironic because you don't have that space, then you don't have the power or the, 
the, you know, the voice. And then you have the, the poolers, right? The audience, you don't have a modern audience. Why, why are you doing it to begin with? But that self, going back to the self gaze, how, how do you think, like how harmful is that to a person who is constantly conscious and self-conscious of how they're being presented? in addition to what they already initially wanted to address, which was something, you know, deep and personal. Um, but this danger of the social media space, can you speak to that? Like how it kind of comes back around to kind of bite you and, and how do we, you know, you always talk about trying to break that structure or change things. Yeah, and Ruby Gower herself actually um, talks about how she actually uninstalls Instagram on her own phone, right? Mm -hmm. So she understands the danger of being sucked into this world, right? Um, and Instagram um, employs technology called the infinite scrolling, right? Um, where you can just literally scroll and there is no page number at the end, right? Because like if you have that page number and you click on next page, next page, there is a sense of um, a finished kind of like page in that sense, right? Like a sense of like, okay, I finished this first page, I'm gonna go and click the next page. So there is this, this little sort of less satisfaction in completing going through one page. But the thing with infinite scrolling is that you, you scroll and you never reach that point of satiation, right? You just sort of like, you just keep scrolling, you keep scrolling, there's no bottom. And therefore it invites you to keep scrolling, right? It itself um, kind of produces uh, the feeling of like, you, kind of like addiction in some ways, right? Uh, and I talk a little bit about that in my book as well, um, that social media is addictive and the power of its addiction lies on its ability to draw us in through our emotions, right? And so they're really, really good at um, posting something that has um, sort of um, likability or dislikability, right, in some ways, uh, that it allows us to feel certain ways. If, if, if a posting doesn't make us feel this way or that way, um, then it's not going to do anything. Um, I think Trevor Noah actually, um, you know, talks a little bit about it in his show, and I love watching his show because, you know, you get entertained and yeah. by his humor. Um, and the ways in which, like, he talks about how, you um, social media like Facebook or whatnot, uh, you may be absent from it for a while, but but they will like send you email or the minute you go back to Facebook, then they will try to um, post, like they will try to um, make sure that you see postings that are the most polarized, right? That way you will have that sort of like emotional reaction to it. Um, and that is um, because otherwise you'll be just like, yeah, you know, you get bored. But if you feel strongly about it, whether you like it or you dislike it or you hate it, or you love it, that's where um, they get their kind of like they get you in, they pull you in. Right. And then you kind of like, OK, you know, I have to say this thing. I have to say that thing. Um, and the thing about social media, too, is that um, you become uh, less sensitive about like who is the person um, in front of you or who is the person you're you're saying all this, you know, horrible things to. Um, and this is why sometimes I, I look at somebody um, and I know them in person and they're like quite pleasant person in, 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 in person, right? Um, but then when they're on Twitter, I was like, OMG, like, you know, how do they become this? Like, they just like, you know, um, kind of really saying all these nasty things to other people and piling on other people. And, and again, 
you know, if this is, you know, what social media turns us into, then, you know, this is a problem. So, so I did say that my book is really about feminist activism. It is, it is right. And so the evidence, the argument focuses on that, but what I hope that we get out of it also is that it allows us to, or it creates a space where we actually look at our own social media behavior, whether we're feminist activists or not. In other words, for as long as you're on social media, I want you to think about um, your social media behavior, whether you uh, project that neoliberal selfie gaze, whether you focus only on yourself, whether you are really just out there to trying to make a lot of money out of it, right? And so that's what I want this book also um, to push us Um, to think about. Yeah. And that's why it's so troubling because it makes us uncomfortable to think about the consequences of certain things or why people have certain personas or love to use this space for, you know, to make themselves larger than life or our, our, as an audience, uh, as a receiver is to be critical of our, what we take in and, you know, how to kind of navigate that space because it's just you know it, it's scary it is it's just like a wild wild uh world out there um can we talk a little bit about mia matsumiya's um social media posts because she you know she created thing this thing called the perv magnet um where she posts other people's posts who say really kind of horrible problematic um things that deal with um sexual harassment you know talking about well, her post is like a messages of by creeps and weirdos and, 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 and people who fetishize on things. So she opens up the space, right, to to offer. And, and there's no such thing as a safe space in social media. Right. So what does this do? Like, how are we supposed to treat spaces like this and opens up um, dangers uh, at the same time, a place for people to heal and, and resonate with all these same similar things that people have been going through? So what I like about Mia Matsumiya and uh, Margaret Cho's sort of campaigns is that um, they were launched in 2015. So that was two years before the Me Too went viral. So in some ways, sometimes I like to describe my book. It's sort of like it's um, about the Me Too movement, but by Asian American women, um, but before Me Too went viral, right? And so, because um, one of the things that both of them ask is that they post not only their own experience of um, Uh, being sexually harassed or sexually abused, but they also invite others um, to share theirs as well. In Mia Matsumiya's sort of case, she actually asked specifically other Asian American or Asian women um, to share their stories of sexual harassment, right? Um, And so that's what I kind of like appreciate about both of their, uh, both of their works that was like prior to that. Um, But as I mentioned in my book is that um, social media is not a safe space. Um, period. It's not a safe space, period, right? It is a public space. um, And we live currently and unfortunately in a, in a sexist world where when women are in public spaces, they get, um, they get judged, right? It, it becomes a threat, right? Uh, And therefore they need to be controlled and trolled, right? And so um, when uh, women are sharing their experiences of being sexually harassed or sexually abused, not only that they have to relive that, but they also then get trolled, they get attacked for saying all these things, right? Um, And so the most important thing about um, using social media as a space um, that could be healing is that that space needs to be um, a quote unquote like safe space, right? As as safe as it could, obviously. Um, I don't think a space that is public, that is unmediated, 
could provide that, right? Uh, and that is one of the reasons why I myself uh, did share any of my Me Too moment, right? Because I knew what was going to happen to me, right? And I would want to protect myself um, from the, the sort of like the uh, further pain, right? And so how do we, um, again, in this sort of world where voices are being overemphasized, right? And silence is being devalued, right? Because to stay silent, people say you are being complicit to that. Um, and that is why I have uh, one of the chapters talk about what is the value of silence, right? Can silence work as testimony? Can silence work as Can a we, protest? Yeah. Dr. Saraswati, I think you're hitting into a very important part of silence, which I wanted to dive into. So let's take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll, we'll break down that chapter of yours. Um, and if people are listening, I am talking to Dr. Ayu Saraswati on her book, Pain Generation, Social Media, Feminist Activism, and the Neoliberal Selfie. We'll continue and talk about this complicated space of silence. I'm back here with Dr. Ayu Saraswati talking about this very complicated world of social media and what it means to be a feminist activist um, in the social media space. And, you know, we talked about uh, several kind of social media stars out there and, the, you know, that complicated but powerful space that it holds. Uh, so before our break, we were mentioning silence. And so in your book, you talk about silence and you talk about how silence can be devalued and how it could be, you know, a form of oppression if you don't get the chance to speak. But at the same time, it could be seen as a, a safe space or a space of protection. So maybe you'd like to elaborate on how you break down this idea of silence in reference to social media. Yeah, so I think in social media, we have the technology or the tool of hashtag, right? And so um, I think there are ways in which we can perform or do silence or mark silence. Um, let's say um, there is this me too, right? Hashtag. And then um, we don't feel comfortable or we don't feel safe, right? Um, to, to say something about this um, at that moment, right? Because again, we may be attacked further by, you know, having our voice out there or for whatever reason that we don't want to share at that moment, right? Then we can mark that silence by another hashtag that says silence as testimony, right? Or silence as protest or whatever that is, right? Um, so I'm not advocating silence like complete silence. I'm not advocating not engaging on social media. I'm not advocating that. What I advocate is to use the tools on social media, like a hashtag, um, to mark our silence. Um, what it does then is it allows other people to ask, to learn to listen differently, or to listen um, to different things, or to listen to things that cannot be said. So for example, um, by having that silence as testimony hashtag, right? Um, if, if there are more than one person who jumps on the wagon and just sort of like silence as testimony, silence as protest, like they're like more people. If there are more than one person who says that they cannot say it, right? By way of using that hashtag, then people will inevitably ask, what, what do they mean by silence as protest, right? Um, so because the thing is, we have to look at the structure that silence us, right, that violates us to begin with, right, that's what we invite them um, to, 
to listen, to learn to listen differently, right? And so, so I, I think it's very important to create those kind of spaces to use whatever technology or tools um, that we have um, and to also value um, silence to allow silence to have currency on social media. So it's not just about overemphasizing um, voice, 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 right? How can um, silence be a form of feminist agency? It, it's so complicated though. I mean, because silence can be loaded, right? It's not what you say sometimes, it's what you don't say. And, um, and that kind of is that feminist approach in looking at what's outside the frame. So if somebody posts something um, to be critical of what may have been silenced in that process of constructing whatever that post was, and how do we acknowledge that and put that context into how we receive those posts? Is that what you're saying, like to read into those spaces? Yeah, silence is about, um, in this case, is what cannot be said because the ideology doesn't allow us to say it, right? And so that's what, um, it, it's not just the unwillingness to say, right? When I didn't want to share my story, it's not just because I'm just unwilling to share my story, but there are like all this sort of like different layers of silence and, and structures that silence need to begin with. And that's what I want to call their attention too. And that is why I um, have that chapter there uh, because I feel that social media really emphasize this sort of like, oh, if you're silent, then you're complicit. Well, there are ways that you are complicit. If you are part of the oppressor, most likely than not, if you are being silent, um, when you have the platform to say something, because again, you're part of the oppressor, you're part of the privileged group, and yet you say nothing, then you are being complicit. But to say that silence is our mode of survival, and in a lot of times that it is, a lot of times silence is what protects us. Um, silence allows us to protect the integrity of our pain, the integrity of our own body, right? Uh, of our own story, right? Because a lot of the time when this hashtag invites you to share a story, they already frame how we should tell that story. It doesn't allow me to frame my own story, right? And so um, I, when I don't want to be, right, um, be interpolated, right, um, to tell the story the way that they want me to tell the story. Sometimes it's either the victim or the survivor, right? There is no space in between. Um, then how do we challenge that? And so these are some of the tools that I talk about in the book. How can we move beyond that? How can we frame our own story? How can we claim that story, right? Um, and provide meanings to it, provide meanings to our pain, provide meanings to our body. Um, so, so that's that's what um, what this chapter is sort of like uh, invites us to think about. Like when we speak, when we when we perform our silence on social media, what does it do, and what does it do for the collective, right? And, and the political nature of silencing, um, you know. The, first of all, like cancel culture has become like so normalized now. Like people feel like that's the power. Everybody has the power to shut someone up. Um, and we do this in different forms. But at the same time, I wanted to also uh, complicate this by, you know, adding in the, the kind of cultural perspective, you know, you, you mentioned, Mark, these three women are, are Asian. And I wonder from an Asian and Asian American perspective, how do we look at this because of the cultural implications of, you know, 
and, and not to generalize too much, but a lot of Asian women are not necessarily taught, but just kind of brought up to be quiet, to, to not voice any problems, right? And so this offers, the social media space offers a new space to be voiced, to be heard. But at the same time, how we treat our voices is different depending on how you were culturally influenced, right? So I did talk about in that chapter um, about silence, um, where I talk about Margaret Cho, um, that Margaret Cho itself is a symbol of like, you know, here, here she is, right? A Korean American woman. Um, and in history, right? Um, in American history, Asians, and obviously Asian women, uh, Asian American women as well, um, are being taught to stay silent, right? And that is, you know, this is how, um, how you can then become the model minority and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then that obviously uh, Margaret Cho really challenges that and she literally lives out loud, right? Uh, and by being loud um, and with her jokes, with her humors and she, you know, um, literally became a comedian, right? And so, um, and so, so, so that in itself, um, allows us to think about, you know, how then we treat silence so that it doesn't kind of like, you know, again, as I mentioned uh, in the book as well, I, I do not um, advocate simple silence. Um, so it is, it is about a different way of performing silence on social media um, because of the, the, the tools, as I mentioned about the hashtag, about all of those things that, that we can use to perform our silence to make people know that we are being intentional about about our silence. So I think that is um, what I, I kind of like want to make sure that the the audience or the readers know is that in no way I um, I advocate silence. And actually uh, on page 103, I talk about, I actually want to illustrate that when it is intentional, the space of silence can be quite powerful, right? And so, so silence as a source of power and how we can perform that on social media is what this chapter is about. Um, so how can we use this as a collective testimony? Um, how, how can we kind of like draw from um, the, the sort of like the, the history of like a testimonial, right? Like we, we bear witness to what happens, right? That our stories is collective story, not individual story, right? So it, there is, there are like certain layers um, that I kind of like highlight there so that hopefully the readers um, understand that I'm not advocating silence. And therefore, this is not the same kind of silence that we talked about earlier about Asian American women being silent, because that's not the kind of silent that I'm talking about in this book, that there are layers of, you know, like how we perform silence, how, how we theorize with silence, how um, I talked about um, how we, we can perform silence through tweets, right? Um, and the ideological work that it actually does. Um, so that's sort of like the things that I talk about in, in this book. Yeah, it's, it's an active silence, right? It's, it's, um, it's, it's loaded. And, and once you go there and you try to look at the different ways you can define silence, it just makes us more critical in understanding our position and our power within, without 
social media. So just to kind of wrap it up, um, you did mention earlier about, you know, the intention of your book, uh, Pain Generation, and talking about how we can change, you know, we, how we have to change the structure and how we need to learn to listen differently. So maybe we can you offer some I don't know. Are are there constructive ways we can do this? You mentioned the the hashtags. Um, are there? How do we want our listeners to come across thinking about how responsible um, and constructive ways we can can tackle and to you know make this a healthier space uh, in social media? Yeah. So there are like um, three chapters uh, where I talked about uh, or I unpack the problems with social media, but the final chapter, the fourth chapter, or in this book, um, it's sort of like the fifth chapter, um, but the fourth analytical chapter, I actually propose um, how we can sort of um, evade or avoid um, this sort of the neoliberal selfie gaze. How can we, um, you know, what can we do, right? So in other words, I don't want us to end on that note kind of like, oh, social media is bad. No, not at all, right? We can actually do certain things there. Um, and so one of the things that I came up with is there are like these three C's that we can think about um, that, or we can reflect on before we post anything on social media. So the three C's are content, context, and collective. Um, so the first thing is about content. When Before we post anything on social media, um, if we are truly, uh, if we truly care about things other than ourselves, then uh, we want to ask whether the content that we post, is it just about ourselves? Is it just about our personal stories? Or is it also about our community, about the collective, about the system, right? About the ecology, about the structure, right? And so um, we also want to ask whether the content invite others to do collective action, broadcast community events and programs, or again, or is it just simply about projecting myself as a successful neoliberal selfie, right? Um, and so that's... Um, that's the content part. The second part is about context, right? Again, when we post anything online, um, do we just say like, well, I'm, I'm just successful because I am fabulous, right? Or do we look at the context that allow us to um, become successful? In other words, what are the, the structure? What are the system that contributes to that, right? Um, does the context provide that we provide allow other people to understand how the structure actually works, right? So that way we don't just blame the individual. Oh, it's because they're lazy. They're like, they, they fail, right? Because the I has to be um, put in the context, right? So we have to understand how the I decides because of the context that allows them to behave in a certain way, right? Um, and so, so that's about the context. Uh, the last thing is about the collective. Um, so is what we're just posting here only focusing on uh, ourselves, or is it prioritizing the collective? Is it collectively oriented, right? Does it aim to harness the power of the collective? Is it even socially responsible? Um, is it about connecting with and supporting each other? Uh, does it work toward ending systemic oppression? Or again, is it just about ourselves? So if we just think about the context, the, the content context and the collective before we post anything on social media, um, we can then sort of like focus on actually contributing something um, 
to our society, contributing something um, to the whole of the community rather than just simply about, you know, humiliating or shaming other people, right? Because um, a lot of the times calling out culture is sort of like a competition, kind of like, I'm more woke than you, I'm calling you out, right? But again, this is about my image versus your image rather than the community, right? Because if I'm really and truly wanting you to do better, then it's not just about me calling you out, but about, you know, like, if you are doing this, then, you know, can you do that instead, right? It, 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 it has that kind of um, uh, sense or, or, or um, you know, you have that kind of like willingness to accept that people do make mistakes, right? Obviously, I'm not talking about like, oh, I did, um, I, I, you know, like if you murder somebody, oh, that was a mistake. But obviously they're like different, different um, ways, uh, different uh, forms of like, you know, a mistake, obviously. But here I'm talking about if I say something wrong, right, um, without intentionally hurting another person, um, then is there a space for people to, to make that mistakes? Because, you know, my guess is we all will make mistakes, if not already, right? Um, and so how can we create that space so that when we make mistakes, we can actually learn from it and actually grow from it and actually like do better, right? So the community can be served um, better, right? And we can live in a, in a better community rather than one that is hostile toward each other, one that is about canceling one another, right? Rather than supporting one another, so. No, thank you. I'm so glad we're ending on this note with the three C's, people. It's not that difficult to remember the three C's, content, context, and collective. And I really appreciate your connecting the individual with the collective, because that is something I feel like, you know, if we're going to use social media space as a kind of like a little microcosm, well, it's not so small, um, of the larger world we're connected with, um, I feel like our lives are desperately lacking that collective. And I think like if we are more conscious of this and to empathize with each other and to recognize our responsibility and our relationship as ourselves within larger different communities, it will make us better people. And I think this, your book is something that's kind of starts that conversation for people to look and question and ask the right questions. So I really, really appreciate this. So uh, Dr. Ayu Saraswati here, um, where can we buy your book, Pain Generation? <laughs> Yeah, thank you. And if you want to support local bookstore, um, the shop uh, book um, and Kaimuki have has my book. So feel free to go out there, support your local bookstore. Thank yeah. you so much for listening and for having me. I appreciate thank you, it. Thank you. And uh, if you all out there really want to learn more uh, about, um, you know, feminist uh, theory and activism and, and about her book, come and join one of the women's gender sexuality study classes offered here at UH. So thank you so much.